Hi, and welcome to the January 4th edition of Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis. I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, and I'm so glad that you've joined us today. Uh, Our desire here at Enjoying the Bible is to help you to understand God's Word and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply God's Word in the power of the Holy Spirit. For today's reading, uh, you will read Genesis 10, 11, and 12, and Matthew chapter 4. That's Genesis 10 through 12, and then Matthew chapter 4. Now, if you want, you can turn, you can hit pause right now and read those passages and then come back, or you can keep listening just as long as you spend your time in God's Word reading through those passages sometime today. Alright, so when we come to Genesis chapter 10, we see another broad stroke chapter where God is just taking the paintbrush through Moses and just painting broad strokes and then he goes back in later chapters and uh, kind of fills in some of the blanks. He did that in Genesis 1 with just the broad stroke especially of day 6 of creation and then in chapter 2 he went back and elaborated. Well, in Genesis 10, God's got the broad stroke out again, and uh, Noah and his three sons, Noah's wife and his three sons' wives, all of them exit the ark. God's made the covenant in chapter uh, chapter 9 that he's never going to destroy the earth by water again. Uh, And then you have just a bunch of names, and and then we even have um, an understanding of where some of these places that are going to become so prevalent in the, the narratives of the Old and the New Testament, where some of them came from. And so we're just going to spend a few moments on Genesis 10. But if you look at verse 11, Genesis 10, 11, it says, From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh. Okay, so Assyria, that land, that's going to play a heavy role. In fact, Assyria is going to be the pagan country, the pagan military that God is going to use to exercise judgment on the northern ten tribes of Israel by taking them into captivity many, many, many years later. Nineveh, well, we understand that from our knowledge of Assyria and from Babylon. If you get down to verse 14, talks of yet another descendant of Noah, uh, and it says uh, Pathrus, Kasla, we don't know these names, but then in parentheses, at least in the Christian Standard Bible, it says the Philistines came from them. Oh, so we know about the Philistines, right? Uh, If nothing else, we know about David and the Philistine giant called Goliath. And so we're just getting the knowledge in Genesis 10 that from Noah, the earth was being populated by his descendants, and these people, these nations, these groups uh, that play so prevalent a part of the narrative are showing up. In verse 15, Canaan. So Canaan. Now, who was Canaan? Well, we understand uh, that Canaan was uh, received the curse from Noah. Uh, that uh, Ham went in and I believe he looked at his father and mocked him as his father was naked, he was drunk, it was probably very hot outside, he went out, he told his brothers about it, mocked his father's nakedness. I think that's what's going on. 
And then Noah cursed not Ham, he cursed his son Canaan. Well, in verse 15, we see Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn in Heth. So who are the Canaanites? Well, those are the people that the Israelites would conquer as Joshua went into the promised land. All of those people in the land of promise that God took out were the Canaanites, the ones that were cursed, that at least their ancestor was cursed, by Noah. Then you get to verse 16, as well as the Jebusites. Do you see that? Jebusites. Who are the Jebusites? Well, before Jerusalem was called Jerusalem, it was called Jebus, where the Jebusites were. And so this is letting us know that the people from Canaan were the ones that were populating the city that would become the, the, the capital uh, city of religion of the world uh, through which you know, uh, Judaism and Christianity looks to Jerusalem and just places such high value on that place. And even Islam does that. But we understand he was just one of the, the kids that came from Canaan and then they populated that city. So what we see in Genesis 10 is just a broad stroke of the names and the nations that would come from Noah to populate the earth. Okay, so now we're in Genesis 11. Now one of the things that I mentioned in Genesis 10 is that it was a chapter with broad strokes that it just, you know, it went over a large period of time just to give us an idea of how Noah's descendants populated the earth and how many of the cities and peoples that would, or some of the cities and peoples that would play such a big part in the biblical narrative um, are mentioned in Noah's descendants in Genesis 10. One of the reasons why I believe Genesis 11 kind of goes back in time into that broad stroke is if you read Genesis 11 verse 1, it says the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. So when we get to Genesis 11, we read that everybody on planet earth spoke the same language. It says the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. But if you go back to Genesis 10, verse 5, the broad stroke chapter, it says, From these descendants, the peoples of the coast and islands spread out into the lands according to their clans and their nations, each with its own language. And so we understand that there is no um, conflict or contradiction here that what we read is chapter 11 is going back and telling us about how it is that the, the nations split up and came to speak their own languages. The, the explanation is Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. Now, we're not going to go into all of the details of this. I'll just let you read that. And if you've got any questions, you can certainly... Um, or if you've got some things that you'd like to add to the discussion, feel free whenever this podcast is posted on the Facebook group page underneath the podcast. Um, post your questions, write your comments, your reflections. I'm looking forward to, to the interaction that each of us have with this. But um, what we see is in verses 3 through 4, uh, it said, They each said to each other, Come, let us make oven-fired bricks, 
verse 4, And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. When you read in verses 5, 6, and 7, you realize that whatever the sin was, in verses 3 and 4, whatever the action was, it was sin. So what was the sin of these people? I think it was at least twofold. One is it was self-exaltation. They were pushing God out of the picture and wanting to make a name for, the, ourse- for themselves. They said, let us, verse 4, let us make a name for ourselves. They weren't seeking to glorify the God of creation. They wanted to make a name for themselves. And so that was one of the sins. The other sin was the very last part of verse 4. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. Wait a second. God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then God told Noah and his three sons and each of their wives, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And yet, these people are in open rebellion, saying, no, we don't want to fill the earth. We want to stay close and we want to build a name for ourselves. And so God said, no, I'm not going to allow that to happen. I have my plan for planet Earth, and I need mankind to steward it. Otherwise, the, uh, the balance of nature and everything else could get out of whack, and so many other things. And so God uh, came down, and this is actually humorous, the way verses 5 through 7 is mentioned, that mankind was talking about how they're going to make a name for themselves to build up to heaven, and it still says the Lord came down to look at them. Um, It's a bit of humor there as God is simply saying, no matter how exalted you feel like you can get, I'm always going to have to come down to get to you. So we see that. And uh, then in verses 8 through 9, the Lord confuses their languages. Uh, This is a miracle. And in fact, I believe that this is an, I think it's an anti-type of, or, or something in the negative that points to a New Testament reality. That in order to separate the people and get them to move out to, to fill the earth, God confused their languages and gave them all different languages so that they mingled in their own groups and, and went to the, the various places where they spoke their own language and they could understand each other. I think what this points to in the negative is Acts chapter 2. <laughs> In Acts chapter 2, the people had filled the earth. People were all over the earth. And yet, in Acts 2, many of them, Jews, they had come to Jerusalem to worship, but they came from all over the place, and they spoke all different languages, and they came from different cultures. And yet, in Acts 2, God gave, once again, the miraculous gift of languages, not to separate them like he did at the Tower of Babel, but here he gave the the miracle of languages to bring them together into the kingdom. To bring them together into the kingdom. So that through this gift of languages in Acts 2, God enabled the disciples, the the group of 120 that was up there in the, uh, the upper room in Acts 1, to speak the gospel, to proclaim the glory of Jesus and the plan of redemption to a people who spoke a language that they did not understand, but they were able to share the gospel with them so in their language and in their dialect, or they were at least able to understand in their dialect, so that the scattered people who were filling the earth now were brought into the kingdom of God. 
So God used in Genesis 11 the language, uh, the language of Babylon, the, the the language there at Babylon to scatter people, and then in Acts 2, God used the gift of languages to bring people together. And then what we see as we finish up in Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 32, what we see is we see the genealogy from Shem to Abraham. Abraham is a huge figure, huge figure in the Old Testament. And so Moses wants to get right to the father of the Israelite family, the Israelite people. And, uh, but one of the things I want you to mention is I, I mentioned earlier on uh, how that the water canopy on day two, this massive body of water that God had above the earth, um, that God separated from the water on the earth on day two, that in Noah's flood, I believe the Bible says it's not just the water that came up from the deep, but also that water, that, that massive amount of water, not just clouds, but a massive layer of water that was above the earth came crashing down to earth and uh, something happened to earth's climate so that people are not living as long as they did in Genesis 5 pre-flood. And if you look at the genealogies, uh, the genealogy in Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 32, you realize that it starts off with Shem who lives 500 years. But as you continue on, uh, you eventually get down to people who are living a couple hundred years. I mean, by and large, most of them, as they get to Abraham, are a couple hundred years. They're no longer living six, seven, eight, nine hundred years. They're not even living 500 years. They're living a couple hundred years. And then we will see in further genealogies that then they come down to the ages that we're living at. So something happened at the flood. And we understand that even though God did not explain that, something happened to the earth so that people are living much shorter lives now. Um, when we get to verses 31 through 32, we see that Terah uh, took his son Abram, not Abraham, he's not Abraham yet, took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, Haran's son, one of you know, uh, Abram's brother, but Haran had passed away, and uh, his daughter-in-law Sarai, that's Abraham's wife, um, and they set out together from Ur to the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. Simply put, God had spoken to uh, Abram in Ur. And we understand that because Acts chapter 7, verse 2 tells us that Abram was in Ur when God said, Abram, I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave everything and follow me. Just start heading west. I'll tell you when you get there. But what we read at the end of verse 11 is that apparently Abram did not fully obey because Maybe he shared it with his father, Terah. Hey, Dad, God, uh, the God, God, God has spoken to me, and I'm getting to know who this God is. But uh, God has spoken to me, and he wants me to leave all of y'all and uh, start heading west, and I'll never see you again. I, I just wonder if, you know, that was the conversation, and Terah said, mm -mm, no, 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 no. Surely God is good and gracious, and so he'll understand that family is, is so important, and so we're going to stay together. And so it tells us the last two verses of chapter 11 that Abram's father took Abram. So he didn't leave family behind like God told him. He took, uh, he, he took family with him. But what happened is they ended up settling halfway there in Mesopotamia, 
They ended up settling in a place called Haran, and then Terah died. <laughs> he died. And so now, you know, Abram, now he, he's died in a foreign land. He's died, Terah, Abram's dad, dies in a foreign land. And so that was undesirable. But not only that, now Abram has one person to take with him, and that's Lot. And we understand from the narrative that we're going to be reading in not too, the not-too-distant future that that relationship became problematic. And so what we see in Genesis chapter 11, the last two verses, is that when God gives us instruction to obey, that it's not left up to us to try to soften it. That if we are clear on what God has told us to do, we must do it completely and instantly, the way that God has told us. Okay, so we come into uh, Genesis chapter 12 right now, and what we see in verses 1 through 3 is what is called, and you need to know this, uh, if you're going to know about the Bible and interact with other people that know about the Bible, you need to know this. It's called the Abrahamic Covenant the Abrahamic covenant. That simply means it's a covenant. It's a strong, and for, for this covenant, an unconditional promise that God gives to Abraham. God is simply saying, Abraham, all you have to do is just be who you are. Now, God, of course, is calling Abraham as the father of a nation, uh, God is calling him to be holy. God is calling him to be separated. God will call upon him to make very difficult decisions and experience hard things um, because God was demonstrating and, and using him as an example for those that would follow behind him as a person of faith. But this covenant is unconditional. God was going to accomplish it. So what's the covenant? Well, let me read it to you. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, and I believe that the Lord said to Abram, not in Haran after his dad died. I think that Acts chapter 7 verse 2, I believe that's the passage that I referenced just a few moments ago. Yes, Acts 7 2. That makes it very clear that the Lord had previously spoken to Abram in, uh, in Ur. Uh, where he had lived, probably grown up, probably where he married, probably where he planned on retiring, if, if they had retirement back then. And uh, so God had said in Ur, this is it, go out from your land and your relatives. God said, leave your relatives behind, but Abram did not comply with that. And your father's house, well, he didn't even do that. He, his father actually went along with him and died halfway to the promised land to the land I will show you. And so God doesn't give him an address. God doesn't say, hey, plug this address into your GPS. God says, I'm going to tell you when you get there. What's God doing? God is doing with Abraham or Abram what God delights to do in every single one of his followers' lives. God says, trust me. <laughs> I'm not going to give you the specifics. I'm not going to give you the details. I am going to tell you what I need you to do. All that you need to know right now is just obey me. That's it. And so that's what God's doing with him. God said to the land, I'll show you. I'll show you when you get there. Just trust me right now. Just get moving. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's unfortunate that so many 
contemporary Christians believe that what that means is, is saving faith. Without saving faith, it's impossible to please God. Well, of course that's true, but I believe that it's not just saving faith. It is a life of faith. It's faith upon faith. It's the person who is saved by faith. They are saved. They still, we still must live by faith. And if we're going to follow the Lord, we ought to expect that God is going to call us to step out in faith when we don't have all the answers. This is what God did with Abram. Verse 2 is still part of the covenant. God says, I will make you into a great nation. See, this is the promise God is making Abram. I'm going to make you into a great nation. We know it's the nation of Israel. I will bless you. I will make your name great. Yes, thousands of years later, we're still talking about Abraham. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. Now listen to the last part of verse 3, because once again we see a road sign pointing to Jesus. Listen. The last part of the covenant in, at the end of verse 3 says, And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So how is it that all of the peoples on the earth have been blessed through Abraham? It's not like Abraham blessed us. You know, he was just a man just like we are. Who came through Abraham? It was Jesus. And Jesus is who's being pointed to. I'm telling you in the book of Genesis and in every book of the Old Testament, Jesus is showing up. There's constant road signs that are pointing to Jesus. And so we, when we get into uh, the rest of the chapter, verses 4 through 6, Abraham is now 75 years old. Sarah is 65. She's 10 years younger than him. And they arrive in the end of verse 5 in the land of Canaan. So this is the land that Joshua, many years later, is going to bring the nation of Israel into as they conquer the Canaanites. But also realize that the Canaanites were the descendants of Canaan, who was the son of Ham, who Noah cursed. And so this is all tied together. That's the thing about the Bible. There's no, with 40 writers writing over 1,400 years, there's no way that this book, the Bible, with its 66 books, there's no way that it could fit together so beautifully unless there was one divine author tying it all together. It's tied together like a, like a spider's web. If, you, if we're able to look at God's Word and look at the connections, it is so beautifully and intricate that it becomes so obvious that God is its author. It's no stretch at all to, to believe that. And so, so then you get to verse 7, and it says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And so this is something else that we see is God promised Abram that, uh, that his descendants, that to your offspring I will give this land. To your descendants I'm going to give this land. And so Abram's uh, response was not doubt. It wasn't questions. What was it? It was worship. The way they worshiped in the Old Testament is they offered up sacrifices. The way we worship today is a sacrifice of praise. We offer up our prayer. We offer up our worship, our singing to, to the Lord. Um, but a response to God's promises that are in His Word should be worship. And so that's what we see Him doing 
here. And so then we see what's going on is as we get on down to verse 9 that Abram continues to move and probably just wondering, okay, God has said that my descendants are going to have this, but nobody's deeding me over their property. And so it says in verse 9 that he just continues journeying south, 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 goes farther and farther and farther into the Negev. Uh, the Negev is the, the dry, arid place, except for in the spring when there are flash floods and there's rains, um, but, uh, but he kept moving south. And so what happens in verses 10 through 20 is there's a famine, no kidding, there's, if you've been there, it's a, essentially a desert, and so he went to Egypt, and uh, we see, once again, um, we see the fact that I'm so glad that if I lived at that time, I'm so glad that, uh, that my name is not in Scripture. I'm glad I didn't live in that time and that God did not put my name in Scripture because if He did, God doesn't just put the good things. He puts the things that we really wish nobody else knew about in Scripture. And so when we look at the heroes of the faith, the Bible isn't fixing them up. It's not glossing over their problems. It tells us of the stupid, sinful things that they do to demonstrate the glory of God's grace and the fact that these heroes of the faith were men and women just like us. But uh, So what he does is he's headed down to Egypt and he's got this relationship with God and this promise of God and yet now he's going to Egypt and he apparently does not believe that, that God, who spoke to him in Ur and continued speaking to him there in the land of promise, is able and big enough to save him in the land of Egypt. And so he tells his wife to lie about her relationship with him and says that... Uh, you know, they're going to look at you, Sarah, and see how beautiful you are. Apparently, she, you know, 65 years of age, and she still looked so beautiful that Abraham believed people would take her away from him. Um, she must have had some really good genes uh, with a G. And uh, so he said, say that you're my sister. And so we see that uh, the Lord brought a curse upon uh, Pharaoh, and Abram was found out. And then Pharaoh, verse 20, gave his men orders about him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And so Abram is going away from Egypt. Instead of glorying in how powerful his God is, he's ashamed of how he did not trust in God. Once again, we see in Scripture that the heroes of the faith are people just like us. We all need God's grace. We all mess up, and all of us are in need of the grace that's found ultimately at the foot of the cross. All right, so let's look at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. There's a lot in here. We'll try to be quick, but you know how that, how that works out. Um, but when we get to chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And that's a huge, huge question. There's at least two things that come up, two big questions. One is why. Why was Jesus tempted? Why did Jesus need to be tempted? Why did the Spirit lead Jesus to a place for the purpose of being tempted? That's what it says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Well, if there's no other reason, it's this, that Adam, who was the first man, Adam, who was the first man, was tempted by Satan, 
You know, I mean, it was Eve that was deceived, but it was Adam who's held responsible because he willfully chose to obey. Since Adam, the first man, was tempted by Satan and stumbled into sin and messed everything up, then Jesus, who Paul calls the second Adam, would be tempted by Satan and would defeat not only sin, but also Satan. And so Jesus had to be tempted so that he could um, win back a victory and win back authority that Adam had lost in Genesis 3. God is a good God. He's just. He's righteous. And he will not take back what is not rightfully his. And since Adam rightfully lost uh, authority that God had given to him, he willingly gave it up and, and allowed Satan to become the prince of the power of the air and, and fell into sin and, and is under Satan's sway. Um, then Jesus came to win back what Adam lost. And so Satan, uh, Adam fell to temptation, Jesus defeated temptation. But the second question is not just why was Jesus tempted, but how is it possible that Jesus was tempted? Because we believe that Jesus, some people say 100% man and 100% God, don't say that. That's silly. That's 200%. It doesn't make sense. Jesus, as we understand it, was and is fully God and fully man. That means he was just as much God as if he were not man, and he was just as much man as if he were not God. He was fully both. And so the question becomes, how is Jesus, how was Jesus tempted? Because the Bible makes clear in James chapter 1, verse 13, it simply says God cannot be tempted. And so since Jesus is fully God, he can't be tempted. So why does Genesis 4, 1, Matthew 4, 1 say that Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted? Here's how I understand it. That even as Jesus maintained his full deity by coming to earth. By coming to earth, he took on humanity so that he was fully man. He was fully man, not having the sin nature. He did not obtain the sin nature. And in that, he was like Adam and Eve when they were first created. No sin nature. Jesus did not have a sin nature. But everything else, he was fully human, fully man. How I believe we are to understand his earthly ministry is he lived his life out in the Gospels as fully man with his deity in the background. So that when he uh, was uh, tempted by Satan, that it would have been the same sort of temptation. It's, it's not like us, you know, not like us. Because when we're tempted, well, we have this sin nature inside of us that compels us, that's saying, yes, 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 I want to do that. Jesus didn't have that sin nature, but neither did Adam and Eve whenever they first sinned in Genesis 3. And so Jesus was tempted in, with the same nature that Adam and Eve had, they stumbled into sin, but Jesus defeated it in human flesh as a man. Now, if I believe that Jesus defeated Satan as fully man, not as fully God, but as fully man, he did not call the God card even though he was fully God, I believe he defeated Satan in, in Matthew 4 as fully man. Now, if Jesus 
had sensed that as fully man, I believe this is how it would have worked, if he sensed that, oh my goodness, I'm being tempted and I'm afraid I'm going to come off into sin, that did not happen. But if it had happened, then his deity would have stepped in and kept him from sinning. Kept him from sinning. I don't believe that had to happen. Because Jesus defeated Satan in Matthew 4 as fully man. The God, the deity is in the background, but he defeated it as fully man. Hope that makes sense. If it doesn't, we can talk about that in our Facebook group. Um, then what we see in uh, Matthew chapter 4, verses 3 through 11, is we see the temptation. All I'll point out is that, uh, you know, previously we were talking about how in 1 John 2.16 it says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And then we looked at Genesis 3.6 and saw how Eve, when she looked at the fruit, that it was good, uh, looked to be delicious and delightful to the eyes, and it appeared to make her wise, um, that those are the three things, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. Well, when we get to Matthew 4, we realize that these three things appear here as well. They're not in the same order. Satan mixed them up. But, uh, but they're those three general categories that Adam and Eve fell to, Jesus defeated. In, in verses 3 and 4, it says, The tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. What's Satan saying? Jesus, you know your body's hungry. You've been fasting for 40 days. You know you're hungry. You know your body wants this. And so, why don't you go on and just use a miracle for yourself? Lust of the flesh. Jesus said, No. But he didn't just say no. He quoted Scripture. And by the way, all three times he quoted Scripture, listen to this, all three times he quoted the book of Deuteronomy. It appears that at least as far as these three temptations, if we were to just draw from only these three temptations, it would seem that Jesus loved the book of Deuteronomy. How long has it been since you and I have found joy in the book of Deuteronomy? But all three of Jesus' quotes in the temptations are from the book of Deuteronomy. So the first one, lust of the flesh. Then, verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle, the highest point of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Well, what's Satan saying here? Satan is saying, Hey, Jesus, you know what? You're here out here by yourself. You've got no crowds around you. You're the God of all creation. At least you say you are. And so why don't you just throw yourself down off of this high point as fully man, you're going to fall, gravity's going to take over, and you're going to hit the ground. But you and I both know that if you are God, if you are God, and, and he knows that he is the Lord, he knows he is, but he's playing with him, Satan is. He said, if you are the Lord, you know that uh, the word of God has promised that they're going to come and rescue you. You know, the, the word of God, and he quotes some scripture, he kind of yanks them out of context. What's that? The pride of life. Jesus, you, your world really is about you. It's not about anybody else. And why don't you just jump off a cliff and watch people, watch heaven come to your rescue. That's the pride of life. Jesus said, no. It's written, don't tempt the Lord your God. Don't test him. And then in verses 8 through 10, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. So he said, look at all these kingdoms. I'll give them to you. All you have to do is bow down and worship. Just look at them and, sh and see all the splendor. What's that? The lust of the eyes. Look at it and enjoy its splendor. And Jesus defeated every single one of these three sin categories. Adam and Eve fell to it. Jesus defeated it. 
Jesus defeated it. That's why I jump ahead. That's why we get to the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, and Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth because Jesus defeated sin and Satan. All right? So then uh, we get to, uh, uh, after that, we get to verses 12 through 17 where Jesus heard that John was arrested, and so he went to Capernaum. And so he went from uh, Nazareth to Capernaum, which would have been roughly, if you go straight there, it's about 25 miles going northeast, and Capernaum is a city on the north, slightly west side of the Sea of Galilee. It is right there on the edge, the city is, and it's got a beautiful view of the Sea of Galilee from Capernaum. That's actually where Peter lived um, and in Capernaum. And in fact, many speculate that after Jesus called Peter to himself to be uh, one of his uh, disciples to be one of the apostles, that a lot of the times whenever Jesus was in Capernaum, he may have stayed in the home of Peter. Um, so he went to Capernaum. And uh, so we're not surprised in verses 18 and 20 that while he's in Capernaum, verses 18 through 20, he went down to the seashore, which is right there, once again, from the city of Capernaum. You can see the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful sight. And he went down to the sea and he saw Peter and Andrew there, by the city where they lived, and he called them to follow him. The very next two verses, verses 21 and 22, he also saw James and John. John would play a huge part in writing the New Testament, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He also wrote the book of Revelation. He was just a young fisherman with his brother James, the sons of Zebedee, that were also down by the sea, and Jesus called them to himself. Then in verses 23 through 25, as we finish up this chapter, we see that Jesus begins his ministry. He is teaching, preaching, and uh, healing. Teaching, preaching, and healing. Teaching seems to be it's uh, just the long-term growth that's necessary to understand the Word of God. Preaching seems to be calling for decisions with that information that comes from teaching. And then the healing, what's up with that? Well, Jesus was demonstrating in his life that when he came to save humanity, when he came to offer salvation to anyone who would trust in him, that he wanted to demonstrate that he really was the Messiah. And so he would not only provide spiritual salvation to people, but he would also heal people. What's up with that? Well, why did people get sick? Why did people go through all sorts of things? Why, you know, Peter, his mother-in-law on one occasion, I think it's in the Gospel of Mark, maybe chapter 1, where she's uh, horribly sick and Jesus heals her. And uh, you've got even three people that Jesus raises from the dead. Why is he doing that? It's because we have all of these things, sickness, sorrow, pain, and death. We have all of these things because of, listen to it, because of sin. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned, therefore we have all of this sickness, pain, sorrow, and death. And so Jesus came and in healing people demonstrated that his kingdom, the future kingdom and its manifestation, is not going to have any of this stuff. This is abnormal. This is what a creation looks like when it is strayed away from God. But we look forward to a time when we get to be with him in an, on a new earth with a new heaven that has come down to earth, a new creation, and we are enjoying being in the presence of the Lord. 
Lord with no longer anything that is that is sinful or a result of sin, any part of the curse at all. We look forward to that day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we thank you so much that even as you came to this earth and even as we read about in the Old Testament all of the road signs that point to you and then as we look at you and your ministry here in our earth how you made the the invisible God the Father known to us as we look at you Lord Jesus we also thank you that in your life you defeated sin so that as we are saved we are not only forgiven but that we're credited with your righteousness and because you defeated sin and Satan, we look forward to the day that even as we, to the best of our ability, and as we're relying upon you, enjoy this life that you have given to us, that we look forward to a day that you have purchased for us by your blood, that we get to enjoy you, a, a time when we no longer have any sin nature, any desire for sin, and we will live in a place where there is no longer a curse upon uh, us because of sin or upon the earth because of sin. We look forward to that day. Thank you, Lord Jesus. But Lord, I also pray that you would help us not to keep this message of the gospel to ourselves, but to share with others, our loved ones, friends, whoever will listen, how it is that they can come into a relationship with you. We do pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen. Hey, I hope you've enjoyed our time together today. As we've looked at these chapters once again, I see that uh, this podcast is a little long. Uh, I don't know, maybe maybe you're okay with it. Just be honest uh, with me and let me know uh, what y'all think uh, on the Facebook group page as far as the length, the content, how I can make this better. I just want to make this worth your while as I once again help us with my limited knowledge uh, to help us grow in our knowledge of God's Word, our love, our joy in God's Word, uh, so that we can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. I look forward to seeing you again tomorrow. We'll see you then. Bye.